Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Brendan Cox. He has spent 25 years serving in the Australian Army, first as a soldier and later as an officer in the Infantry Corps. During his time, he has done a number of operational tours, and his first one was to Bosnia with the British Battle Group, uh, which is uh, naturally of particular interest to me. He also deployed twice to East Timor and later also to Afghanistan. For his exemplary service, he has received a number of awards, including a commendation for distinguished service in the Australia Day Honours List in 2014. I first met Brendan during his time as the commanding officer of the 51st Battalion, the Far North Queensland Regiment. This was back in 2008 when I was a brand new lieutenant, uh, fresh out of the military college, uh, and Brendan was in charge of the unit. Although I didn't see much of him in person, I remember being tasked uh, with writing essays about famous battles along with the other lieutenants in the unit. Brendan was always very keen to broaden our academic horizons, so it came as no surprise to find out that he holds a number of degrees himself. He is a graduate of the United Kingdom's Joint Services Command and Staff College. He holds a Master's of Business from the University of New South Wales, uh, as well as a Master's in Defence Studies from the King's College in London. He's also a graduate of the Australian Institute's Company Director's course. And in 2018, he completed a Harvard Business School Fellowship studying strategic perspectives in non-for-profit planning. Brendan is now the Chief Executive Officer of Legacy Brisbane. For those not familiar with the organisation, Legacy supports families of veterans who are experiencing hardship due to the loss of a loved one in service. Undoubtedly a humbling role, and given his extensive experience, well, it's one Brendan is uniquely qualified for. Brendan, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. As it's uh, always great uh, to talk to you, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Greatly appreciate it. No, absolutely. It's my pleasure and uh, good, to, good to chat to you again after some years uh, that it's been. Uh, before we delve into your rich background and experiences, uh, maybe let's start by asking, uh, you know, going back to basics, I guess, uh, what motivated you to join the army in the first place? Did, did you always want to be a soldier? Yeah, as, as long as I can remember, um, I always wanted to join the military. I'm, I'm the youngest of seven kids. Oh, right. uh, Mum and dad both from Dublin, so they also got a TV set after me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, six, six boys, one girl in the family, oh, and wow. two of my brothers had already joined up. Um, my second eldest, Brian, uh, was initially in cavalry, then went to military police, and then uh, my brother just above me, Damien, uh, joined 3RAR, uh, and that was the battalion that I joined. Um, so I always saw what they were doing. That outdoor lifestyle um, was very appealing. And of course, when you first join up, you think, I'll just give this a go for one or two years. And as you said, you know, five years later, I'm still going, okay, it's probably enough of a trial now. I might go outside and work somewhere else. <laughs> and, tr and try something else. No, that's that's fantastic. I mean, 25 years uh, is, is is quite a commitment and, and congratulations for, uh, for the service. Uh, when I was uh, preparing for the interview, I, as I mentioned in the intro, your first operational tour was in the Balkans, and that's only something I found out about you, uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks preparing uh, for this chat. How did that come about? Because that's not a very common deployment for Australians. 
No, it was it was very rare, and this was a pre-East Timor uh, deployment where I thought that would be the one and only um, yeah. uh, opportunity. I, I was very fortunate that uh, my last captain's posting was as the aide to the Land Commander Australia, and uh, as part of his responsibilities, he would visit uh, every UN mission and NATO mission we had uh, overseas. Uh, I, I unfortunately didn't join him on that soiree, but um, <laughs> when he came back, and we, and we were pretty busy uh, preparing for East Timor uh, at the time, mm-hmm. so we, we had a fair bit of uh, insight and, and planning into that. Uh, and I mentioned to uh, General Hartley saying, if you were given the opportunity, where would you serve for, from a, both a complex military professional um, uh, perspective, but also the challenges of, of that of, of the local areas and, and he said without a doubt we have one australian uh, assigned to the british battle group in the balkans and he said that's the job to go for so um yeah i applied and was uh, fortunately selected so i did a uh, tour uh, with the royal regiment of wales so joined them in germany converted over to their uh, warrior armored fighting vehicle and then uh, deployed as initially the factions officer uh, but did actually end up uh, being a company commander there for a very short period of time. Oh, wow. It, it had a great, great impact on me uh, for, for many reasons, uh, both good and bad. But that tour certainly awakened me to the challenges and responsibilities uh, of command and, you know, what, what war is, is somewhat about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, to be thrown into the Balkans. Um, what, so what, what year was that that you were there then? So I was there in 1999, so post-conflict. Uh, so our, our role responsibility was, you know, identifying the, the areas that, you know, where the mass graves were, assisting international police in identifying people indicted for war crimes, uh, restoring law and order to an area that desperately needed it, and uh, keeping the warring factions uh, back in their containment sites, you know, in the areas that we... And, and doing a lot with black market trade, but also demilitarizing uh, a lot of the communities. It was a really complex environment and very challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, anybody I've met who's served uh, in the Balkans uh, during or post the conflict is, uh, has said very much the same thing because of the multitude of stakeholders that were uh, competing for primacy, competing for power. The, uh, Like you said, the black market um, was absolutely rife and all the while trying to prevent the return of, uh, of violence. Uh, where, where in the Balkans were you? So I was sort of uh, a bit north of uh, Sarajevo, um, <laughs> uh, in a place called Mekonichgrad, up in yeah, the Amble. Yeah, so we, we lived out of, out of a uh, bombed out shoe factory, uh, which we made home. Huh. Um, and uh, we're also the response force for the American division uh, up in Croatia. So we did a very short, short stint up that way uh, as well. But um, yeah, that was uh, I was amazed by the brutality of that war. And I'm, you know, I know that, that you are very much aware of it. But you know, for a, a young captain coming out of Australia, you know, um, living the beautiful lifestyle that we have here in a very, very secure, comfortable environment, and then to be exposed to uh, a very educated and, and for all intents and purposes, very advanced community. Uh, but the way they just turned on each other was, was really confronting. And, and it, you know, that, that was 
when I was the company commander, I, I lost uh, two soldiers under my command. Um, oh, uh, Their warrior armoured fighting vehicle hit, hit some... I was there for a winter tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, hit, hit black ice, went off a bridge into uh, an iron minefield, killing two, well, one instantly, one very shortly after, and, and significantly wounding the other three. And, you know, to have that sort of challenge thrown at you as a, as a lone Aussie in command of a, a 200 man sort of uh, warrior uh, company group was very confronting and you know I did question you know myself my you know what what change was I going to bring to that country and feeling probably really the first time um, not so much useless but just saying why am I here what what is my impact um, so yeah it was it was a real challenging environment that's a it, it's yeah, it's almost fortuitous that uh, we're talking about Bosnia in that sense because, of course, it resonates so closely to me. But uh, what? How did you answer that question? That's a that's a really insightful question. And as you say, particularly for a young captain from Australia with a British battle group, so commanding soldiers who you arguably didn't didn't really know that well, didn't probably train for that long with and all of a sudden you are now in command i mean that's a that's quite a daunting uh, list of challenges H- how did you firstly deal with that and then also what were some of the you know how did you answer those questions about you know what am i actually doing here yeah there's um um like sort of there's multiple uh multiple problems uh, there's multiple solutions i guess but the, the first thing i learned was the value of a great um, for me, company sergeant major, a, a great trusted ally that you can speak openly and honestly to, and you know, ultimately expose um, some of those those concerns. And I had a great company sergeant major, and that that um, fighting vehicle was returning from uh, our last recon patrol for a major operation to occur you know, uh, within the next three to four days. And my initial feeling was to say, well. You know, perhaps we can hold this operation up. Perhaps we, we just need to re- re- reconsolidate. And you know, he, we, we talked about that at length and, and we decided, no, it's best to get back up on that horse and, and get on out there and not so much justify the loss of life, but just give some reasoning in behind it. So when we speak to the families you know, back in Wales, um, they can understand what, what the outcome was. So, so whilst, whilst professionally the response was there and everyone observing, you know, from... From an inward sort of perspective, probably didn't see that too too much of a change in me. You know, I might have been a bit quieter and and what have you, but internally it's a different issue. I think you'd appreciate, Maz, that that I really drew on my I had an Irish Catholic upbringing, so I really drew on uh, some of that spiritual interiority search about my values, and and I came to the conclusion probably seven to ten days later that I was never going to change as one person. Um, the circumstances of Bosnia. And what I could do, however, is potentially change the trajectory of one family out of the township uh, at our front gate in the Contragrab. And so uh, with that, you know, uh, know, with a true belief that a strong family makes a strong community, makes a strong country, we, uh, our next patrol in the Contragrab and not, not, not forgetting here, these are minus 30 degrees sometimes. <laughs> we found a, a, a bombed out, there's plenty of bombed out houses there, but um, we found one family living in, you know, no roof, no door, no uh, windows, mm. uh, just living in the shell of their home. And, 
you know, they weren't going to survive the winter. So without exposing them, uh, patrol after patrol, we, we provided the stores, you know, uh, hidden in the bush and that the family basically restored its house. We, we were able to get the mum and dad uh, employment in the NATO. So we had locally employed uh, civilians uh, on the NATO site. So both of them uh, got employment and, um, you know, we just get some comfort stores to the kids. Uh, there was one kid there that he'd been butt stroked uh, during the conflict and one eye was going, you know, sort of left and, and the other eye was was safe. So, you know, just provided them footballs and, you know, cuddly toys and things. And that got me, that gave me my, my spiritual and personal energy to really apply myself to the military challenges ahead. And, and where this story finishes, Naz, is where, when I finished my tour, the next Aussie captain that, that joined the, the next British battle group come in, I said, look, here, here's a family uh, that we've met. I've selfishly, you know, invested into them for my own spirit, mm. and you know, you know, and explain the circumstances. And uh, a bit a bit later in my career, when I was doing my pre-command course for the half colonel, so that's about ten to twelve years later, mm-hmm. uh, an Aussie captain came up to me and said, "Were you the Captain Cox out of Bosnia in the 1990s?" And I said, "Yeah, I was." And he said, "Well, that family had been handed over by every Australian officer, and." Oh. Um, that they said to say thank you. They'd moved to Banyalika, so the biggest city down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, the child had had restorative surgery uh, to the eye and was uh, at, at the university doing a university degree. So, wow. you know, what, what was probably my darkest time, you know, personally within the military, um, and I, I had struggled, you know, there'd been a lot of tears and, and, and all the rest of it, as you, as you remember, those sort of, uh, those incidents, it soon became the greatest you know, honour and privilege I've had, uh, knowing that you know, a family with a small degree of effort from me and other Aussies had survived and, and flourished in, in an environment that was exceptionally challenging. So you, you just never know where, where some of these stories end. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, it's a wonderful reflection now for me. Uh, you know, when you sometimes think about the the you know, the loss of life and and whilst um, you know th- those two foreign soldiers, you know, what why they died and and they, they ultimately were part of the solution, certainly for this family. Wow. Yeah. Th- well, firstly, thank you very much for sharing that story. That's a that's a very humbling story. And and as a child from that conflict, somebody who's uh, also been helped by various individuals um, along my journey out of that war through Germany and then into Australia, um, I can also echo that those moments of kindness by absolute strangers uh, make a world of difference. I know they certainly made a difference for me throughout my life and uh, it's partially what planted the seed uh, or or nurtured the seed for me joining the military as well is meeting um, military members from other uh, countries who've kind of uh, showed me what we now refer to as good soldiering. And I think that's very much speaks to that point. Uh, even though you harbored uh, some of your own demons uh, and you were trying to, you know, to heal your own demons through it, but I think helping others uh, certainly helps us along the way. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's absolutely amazing. And um, and also as an ethnic Bosnian, I can, uh, I can uh, you know, warmly thank you for your, uh, for your part. So when you return to Australia, because I think, well, as you said, you know, this was in the you know, pre-Timor days and at that point in time, Australia was largely 
or our army was largely peacetime army. Now, you had returned from active service uh, in a very, very complex environment, arguably very geopolitically complex environment. You had lost soldiers under your command, which again is a harrowing experience, but I think one that's, again, rather unique, certainly at that time. How was it? How, how was that coming back into the peacetime army in Australia? You know, seeing firstly deploying with a with with a, with a different military uh, into a different operational theater and being you know in a in a pretty intense environment to then come back to the peacetime Australian army. Yeah, it's um, the, the one thing that, that I when I reflect on that whilst we were a peacetime army, we we certainly trained hard. And it was certainly the level of training the Australian Army invests in the individual uh, really held me in good stead. Um, so, you know, it's one thing the Australian Army, I think, has, you know, that, that phrase, you know, batting above its weight or, or however you want to term it. But we do invest a lot of, you know, um, a continuum of training for our soldiers and our officers that really holds us in strong stead when we um, compare ourselves, I guess, to our peers in other countries. Now, to return to, uh, so Australia had deployed its first uh, Indefet force uh, whilst I was over in Bosnia. So we'd started the uh, commitment to uh, East Timor and I returned to the 1st Battalion uh, Royal Australian Regiment up in Townsville who were warned out uh, to deploy in that second rotation uh, after Indefet. So I came back, little was known of, of, of the, you know, what, what happened in the former Yugoslavia and, and in Bosnia and and because I suppose the battalion was so busy, you know, and, and I dare say a bit excited about its first operational tour since uh, Somalia, they, they were a bit focused on that. And interestingly enough, uh, the commanding officer, uh, when I arrived at the unit, said, look, you've been overseas already. You've got to stay home for three months and do OC details. <laughs> for your sins. <laughs> for my sins. So, so a bit of... Oh, welcome back, but, you know, um, you know, sit back here. But I've got to say that, once again, you know, these uh, life throws you opportunities and, and I actually needed that time, to tell you the truth, um, to probably decompress a bit personally after Bosnia, but also invest, you know, in my partner and uh, soon, soon to become a wife and also learn about some of the complexities about families who stay behind. And I think sometimes we under, uh, don't appreciate enough what they go through. And you know, as the battalion went over in those first three months when I was at OCW Details, I used to have information nights for all of our, uh, for all of our uh, ladies and, um, and families staying behind. And just the anxiety and concern when you heard of incidents overseas and, and people couldn't communicate if there was a, you know, a death overseas or if there was an injury overseas, they wanted to answer straight away. But of course, as, as you appreciate, there are some protocols and procedures that the military must go through to ensure the right next of kins are informed. And therefore, all the other people who are around that environment are as equally concerned, is it their loved one? And you had to be that sort of front of the, the military face as the welfare officer, basically saying it's okay. You know? But the obviously anxiety and concern of those families was, was, was very evident. And it was something I always carried forward in ensuring you know, good, strong communication channels on, on uh, being proactive as opposed to being reactive all the time uh, to, to, to gain an element of trust when, when anxiety does prevail. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touch on a very important point there and one that 
uh, is probably not discussed often enough. And that's, you know, the families that are staying behind because, you know, as, as soldiers, we train for a job and more often than not, we're excited when we're deploying uh, to go overseas. But the families that are left behind are the ones that are arguably doing the, the, the hard yards. Um, and I think that also, uh, you know, and, and I think it'll all tie in well because it now it's now starting to make sense how you ended up you know, working with Legacy, uh, which we'll certainly come back to uh, very shortly. But I just want to touch on a little bit more on the on your experience with Timor-Leste, uh, and then we'll definitely uh, talk uh, about the families and the importance. But you... You also deployed to Timor, is that right? Yeah, so uh, I then, uh, so I did come back uh, as a captain. I did my promotion course and then deployed as OC Alpha Company one area. So I had my own subunit on that first tour. And then I was to return three years later as the operations officer of the 1st Battalion and uh, do another tour in East Timor. And, and it's, it was wonderful. It was a real honour to do that because you saw the progress of the country that wanted to really embrace the, the, the freedoms, the new freedoms they had established and work hard at it uh, within you know, the, the limited resources they had. So to see the evolution of Timor between my first and second tour was really pleasing and, and quite rewarding um, because if you, if you only do it for one short period in time, you may not appreciate the true impact of you know, those, those smaller durations of tours and how that plays out over a long time. Yeah. And how far apart were those two tours? Three years. Three so, years, okay. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was quite good. So we we went, say, the first tour was very much uh, in our area, patrolling the ground, uh, providing a secure environment, working with international police to you know, get security back happening. You know, so very much what we call green ops and blue ops. So green ops where you camouflage, go into the bush and you do your infantry uh, skills and tactics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and blue ops is where you do more of the reassurance patrols. You put your blue hat on, no campaign, but you go into the villages, very remote villages, and, and talk about you know uh, what's happening from a, both a threat perspective, if there's any militia operating in the area, through to how does this village sustain itself? What needs do you have? How can we support you? And then on the second tour... Uh, it was very much training the local indigenous forces to do their own security. And whilst, of course, we, we still had a, a strong element of a, a hard shot of we could present to any threat, um, it was all about um, indigenous capacity building. And it was really good to see. And how well were you prepared for those different challenges? And I mean more from the uh, understanding of the human terrain, understanding the culture, uh, being able to build relationships. Um, how, how well versed were you? Did you have language skills or did you have linguists or how, how did you do it? Yeah, we, we had uh, linguists um, assigned to each of the patrols. Uh, and those linguists were Australian soldiers who had been trained up in the local dialects and languages. It was interesting. I, uh, as you know, uh, Maz ended up commanding 51st Battalion mm-hmm. a bit later on. And, you know, there's some complex human terrain you yeah. know, right there in their own backyard. And, and I hadn't realised really probably to the full extent, even post uh, Bosnia and, and Timor, you know, I, I had a very much a military focus as a military officer, how I was going to execute operations within my area. What the 51st Battalion showed me was once you truly respect the culture and try to embrace it as best you can, even through your military uh, orientations, 
the more you embrace that, you do win the hearts and minds. And it was certainly something I took into uh, Afghanistan later on. But yeah, the, the, an understanding of the complex human terrain that exists you know, in all of our communities today, mind you, but certainly on military operations, the more you can understand those relationships between different factions and groups, the stronger your outcomes and the faster the outcomes will come to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, yeah, again, that's a very insightful point. Um, and, and it's, you know, in many ways, kind of the, the, one of the principal points of this podcast as well is to negotiate those finer nuances uh, of military operations that we don't often see. And it's, you know, the, the, the way we perceive war or conflict when we deploy in uniform is often, not often, it's always very different to, you know, the people that are actually in that war. And if we don't understand the machinations behind or even the power dynamics or, you know, who's who in that particular zoo, you know, oftentimes we can, you know, make the problem worse rather than better. And I think in Bosnia, certainly not in your case, but in, in um, uh, you know, certainly in Sarajevo, there were examples of that where well-meaning individuals uh, often exacerbate tensions and certainly speak uh, to that in Afghanistan. I think there's a lot of research coming out about um, kind of the broader coalition contribution to Afghanistan and, and perhaps not understanding exactly what what the power dynamics were. But it's, a, it's, it's certainly something that I think we probably need to pay a bit more attention to. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned Afghanistan because I think you had a really interesting tour really, reading your bio. Uh, you were in a mentoring role in, in Afghanistan, is that right? Yeah, it was, a, it was um, probably the, the highlight of my military career. So I was, I was mentored to the Chief of Staff to a Fifth Corps, a gentleman um, called Brigadier General Shah. General Shah was a director or is a director center of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, he was a mullah, uh, a village elder, uh, a man of great influence. You know, uh, number uh, two or three on, on the Taliban's hit list because we were operating in the vicinity of Kandahar, the spiritual homeland of the Taliban. And so when you compare General Shah and, you know, uh, a Lieutenant Colonel Cox from Australia, uh, you would say these guys are polar opposites, but we weren't. You know, he, he was a man of great belief, and, and I still consider my, myself a, a man of great belief. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the same God or Allah, or you know, it, it just needs to have a belief system in which you respect um, uh, strong values. Uh, and he, he had all that. And I was his first Australian mentor, and you know, he, he would, would pull out the prayer mat at two o'clock and in his office, you know, as we'd been planning or before we head out on, on a you know, battlefield circulation and patrol. And um, he said, oh, you, you go go back to your Ford operating base. I said, why? He goes, oh, it's my prayer time. I said, well, you can pray there. I can pull up a, a knee over here and I'll pray to my God. You pray to your God. And between two gods, I hope we can return home safely. So, <laughs> yeah, that's at, at least two on our side, right? <laughs> You know, yeah. sort of, uh, we're covering ourselves relatively well here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But then we we we, we try to get under those onion layers of saying, you know, and he asks saying, okay, this is uh, the way that we would um, celebrate a uh, a marriage in in Kandahar uh, or Kabul. How do you cel celebrate a marriage in Australia? And, and we talk about the the Christian and Muslim uh, faiths, and not through eyes of judgment but through trying to appreciate the cultural sensitivities that go along that. And it's a really different perspective. And it's, it is, as you were saying, understanding the, 
the dynamics of the human terrain first, because the geography of Afghanistan has never been you know, commanded by any any army in the world. <laughs> yeah. And it's the complexity of the people and the villages and how they interrelate and, and why some things just will not work. And, and certainly from a Western perspective and the way we do our military tours even, they're very short-term. And therefore, we, we create military goals that can be counter to a long-term sustainable... And, and I used to use, use the term with General Shah, you know, uh, we have to create an Afghan sustainable solution to this problem. Uh, it can't be coalition-led. And that if that means, you know, we, we've got to learn some painful lessons, but when we do leave, and eventually we will, you have to have the solutions that is Afghan sustainable. And, you know, it was frustrating, challenging, because then, you know, we were working with the 82nd Airborne, um, which was the partnered organisation of the 205th, um, you know, and they had very much set criteria to achieve. So sometimes very much counter to what would be Afghan sustainable. But, you know, that's the nature of military operations. It's it's complex. Yeah. But how did you balance those competing priorities? Because, I mean, here you were mentoring uh, a general, but then you also had the 82nd Airborne with their own, and, and I can only assume what type of kind of very military-oriented kind of measures of effectiveness. You were in a particularly challenging role having to mentor, but then also, you know, competing priorities with the 82nd Airborne. How did you balance those? Well, it's, um, and I suppose this is where, you know, both the, the 82nd had done several tours by that point, understood some of the difficulties, but, you know, there, there was military outcomes I was seeking. And equally, General Shah, who had been a soldier since he was the age of 12, you know, understood some of the demands placed upon them. Now, for me, sometimes stuck in between, there's been the messenger to both sides of bad news and then copying it equally from both sides on, yeah. on how to recalibrate that message. Yeah, it was really personally challenging, but, you know, there, there was a great deal of respect, um, you know, going, going always, you know, in, in all directions. And sometimes you had to bite the bullet and, and undertake orders that you, you thought or knew were, were not of the best for one of those agencies or one of those groups, but you executed because they were the orders of the day. And, and sometimes you, you can't attach yourself too personally to those. You, know, you, you have to understand where your sphere of influence starts and ends. Um, and sometimes if you're in the military, you've got to get on with it uh, because there is a higher broader, more strategic perspective, or there are things happening that you are unconscious to, and therefore that level of trust must be, it doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't mean it, it isn't a, a valuable contribution to you know, the outcomes that we are all seeking. But you've got to be prepared for robust discussions, be on the front end of the decision to represent you know, as passionately and as objectively as you can. But once that decision is made, it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's getting on with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and I think given given the person you were mentoring, I can totally understand why you say it was the highlight of your uh, military career. Uh, what when you think back to that tour, what do you remember the most vividly? Um, I think uh, the thing that that I always probably reflect upon was every uh, once a week. Well, I lived um, and travelled with the Afghans. We'd be moving with Afghan vehicles, and um, so I wasn't in in like the Bushmasters or any coalition. And whilst we have 
you know, overhead protection through the Apache and, and other aerial support there was, I felt exceptionally vulnerable in uh, when, when doing these, these this one specific weekly patrol that we had to do, because it's all about getting to the provincial governor and uh, having basically what is a security coordination at the provincial gov governor's house in Kandahar. And here I am in a uh, an unsealed, you know, some of the doors wouldn't even close properly. We are stuck in traffic jams, and like every day and night, there was bombings. There was things going. How the hell did I get myself here? <laughs> yeah, I laugh about it now, but I can I can tell you, it's certainly one of the. the uh, uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned it to my wife. Um, so hopefully, she, you know, I'm <laughs> sure the podcast here, Matt, but um, you might have <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might have you might might have a bit to answer for uh, <laughs> when she is. But you know, you know how you, how you get sometimes get these feelings that, that you know that can make you a cold sweat that can give you the tingles on the back of your neck. That that feeling I had on several occasions, but certainly my first one, um, going, "Oh my god, this is ridiculous!" But you know, uh, we got through. We got through. Yeah, and especially given the context that you're uh, sitting next to number two or number three uh, on the Taliban hit list. I mean, I think that uh, that truly elevates <laughs> those yeah. tingles, undoubtedly. Absolutely. I'd say, but really, um, you know, dealing, uh, working with the Americans, working uh, with the Afghans, really trying to understand the conflict from the Afghan perspective, but using all that wonderful, you know, uh, American... Uh, intelligence and, and, and capabilities uh, and other coalition forces as well. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fascinating time, fascinating time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, it, you know, as I now develop a picture of your of your career and your background, you know, Bosnia, firstly, losing soldiers, um, you know, then, then then really kind of Timor uh, looking after the, especially in read details, speaking to the families, then again, you know, in Afghanistan, seeing the, the rawness of war and the fragility of life, probably experiencing in your own, own skin. Uh, I think the important point here is that when we go to war, and I mean, we Australians, we go well equipped, we're well armed, we're well trained. But, you know, you were supporting the local, uh, the Afghan National Army, <laughs> and you were riding around with, you know, arguably one of their most senior members, but rather very, very exposed, which I think is, again, a really unique experience. Um, so I'm actually, now that I've kind of contextualized all that, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that you uh, ended up working for Legacy or now as the Chief Executive Officer. Uh, but maybe, maybe I'll ask you the perhaps obvious question, what, what motivated you to join Legacy? What, what, what brought that decision about? Yeah, it's um, uh, you know, another little uh, chapter of, you know, where life just takes you on a journey. And um, so when I left the military, I was medically discharged after that tour in, in Afghanistan, right. uh, infantry back, um, okay. spinal operations, a lot of surgeries since, and slowly they rebuild me. Um, Right, but, I hear that. I, uh, I didn't realise. Yeah, yeah, you no, know, it was. Um, uh, it is what it is. And uh, so I, I had this uh, a bit of difficulty in my transition. Um, and I've got to say, it was probably my ego was my biggest hurdle to jump. Is that I thought oh, I'm a half colonel. I've you know got those degrees you spoke about at the start, and uh, who the hell wouldn't want me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was probably probably reading too many of my own reports, and, and <laughs> yeah. I probably didn't put the effort in, uh, to be absolutely honest. 
um, to contextualising that for a civilian audience um, on what was, what management was, you know, in austere environments. And so therefore I wasn't getting uh, the jobs. And, but there was a leap of faith taken by a financial services practice. And the two directors um, who are very good mates today uh, took me on as their general manager to build their team about 20 to 30. And where, where I'd been sort of knocked back by every other sort of industry and group because you know, I lacked uh, industry experience and that was the common uh, sort of issue. Um, one year later, I ended up being, we ended up being the, the uh, national, inaugural national practice of the year for the Australian financial uh, services industry. Wow. And you know, on a speaking circuit um, around, the, uh, around the country, telling people how to manage um, <laughs> an award-winning practice. So it was a bit of a <laughs> And look, things are going great. Um, Arthur J. Gallagher um, uh, wanted to invest in the Australian market and they approached this, this group. And uh, about a week later, we were in Chicago pitching to, uh, you know, the second, third biggest uh, brokerage in, in the world. Um, and uh, these two directors uh, became millionaires overnight. Um, and I should have had shares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I think another conversation uh, you'll have with the wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of those turns that didn't go the way I planned. Yeah. And I was then going to look at becoming, you know, their, their sort of national manager. And so things were looking really good. And then my wife and I and the family were on holidays down the Gold Coast. My mate gave me a call. He said, hey, look, have you seen this job in Legacy Advertised? And I look at it and said, wow. And um, I spoke to my wife because obviously, you know, not-for-profits aren't seen as the, the highest paying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And we had a good and she said, if you don't go for this, you know, uh, you'll be kicking yourself. So I went for it um, thinking that, oh, no, there'll be, there'll be plenty of other people out there. And there was, of course. But um, here I am. You know, they got, got selected by the board, uh, placed in the position, uh, been there now uh, here for five years. And it's an absolute calling of, you know, trying to look after those families who were just worse off than mine. Now, I'll return to a, a beautiful home, wonderful family, you know, uh, whilst you know, a few you know, physical injuries uh, from a, an infantryman serving a long period of time, you know, in really good order. And the families that we serve in Legacy are just simply not that. You know, they, they have degrees of disadvantage and degrees of, of, of support that they require because their loved one has served our country. Now, some of those didn't return, some of those did return bearing the scars of their experiences. And those are scars they carry for the rest of their life. And therefore, the family goes on this journey, not just the veteran. And in many ways, you know, the partner and children were trying to make sense of why, why is this person broken? And why is it now my responsibility? And there's so much love and support and care there. But there's also this, you know, why? You know, who is there to assist us? Well, you know, legacy, we do our best. And where we can't do, we refer, uh, we collaborate, and we just keep um, eyes and ears, uh, if you will, uh, for these families to ensure that they do have a trusted person to turn to when they need it. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 just maybe just for our overseas listeners, uh, and probably somebody I should have uh, asked for some context uh, first. 
Can you just in a nutshell explain what Legacy uh, kind of does broadly? What is its remit? Because I know most most of our Australian audience will know, but uh, any overseas listeners uh, might yeah. not. Yeah, no, thanks for that, Matt. Look, so Legacy is a uniquely Australian organisation. There is no other Legacy in the world. Legacy's point of difference is that at the end of World War I, um, Australia only had about 5 million inhabitants, and out of that, we lost 60,000 on the battlefield in, in you know, uh, Europe and in the Middle East. 60,000 would then uh, succumb to their injuries over the next decade. So for a small country at the time, we had a large loss of life. And the veterans, when they returned, uh, and the romantic notion of, of, of legacy is one where uh, there was a promise made on the battle, in the Battle of Poziers, where a dying soldier said to his mate, look after the missus and kids. And that's the promise that talks about. So legacy just looks after the partner and children. As a veteran, both you and I, Maz, we, we, we won't get any support from legacy because we, we can go to return services league or other agencies look after veterans. But legacy is there for partner and children. And primarily we are a lot of ex-military members, about 50% ex-military and 50% you know, just from the broader community, which is wonderful, it's what, what we want. But legacy's point of difference is it's a relationship. So when that family comes into our care, we stay with a widow until she dies. We stay with the family until the children turn 26, and at that point, they, they should be able to make good in the world. But it's not a transactional relationship. So even in the good times, we are there. We are having cups of tea. We're, we are in the living room to these families that have lost a loved one to the service of our country. So it, it's an amazing organisation. We're approaching our centenary, and we know, just to the nature of human, you know, human beings, that our services will be demanded upon well into the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, we've lost, what, I think 43 in Afghanistan, which of course is, 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 and all of those have families and loved ones. So there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of people that will need help. But I think we also lost more than 500 to suicide back in Australia. And I think that's a, that's a, many call it a plague. Are you, do you help those families as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, five core programs in Legacy, uh, our Aged Widows uh, programs, and, and there's widowers as well. Uh, we have nine widowers who've lost their partner uh, in the service of our country. And that's just in here in, in Legacy Brisbane. So we, we were 7,500 in southeast, central and western Queensland. So we were asked by the Army here at the 7th Combat Brigade back in the MPF-1. So th this was a mentoring task force, Rotation 1, based on the 6th Battalion out of the Nogra Barracks. And what was observed by the senior commanders of the day was that they were deploying these very able-bodied men and women into harm's way. Each one of those men and women would have a unique experience on the battlefield, and they could have a shared experience, but it was unique to them. And they all responded differently, as, as we all would, you know, based on our experiences and education and spirituality and all the rest of all the things that make us a complex human being. Some of those, when they returned, uh, were unable to continue because of mental health uh, in the services of the Australian Army. And the commanders would then, of course, be handing these military members back as civilians to their families, but no preparation of the family to, to adopt and, and take back this very broken... So Legacy formed, uh, at the request of the Australian Defence Force, what, um, what we call our Family Assist Programme. And that's where we once again work with the partner and children, not forgetting the veteran will have his or her 
support mechanisms, and that can be through Department of Veterans Affairs or Return Services League, all focused on the veteran. But we need to assist the partner and children to understanding what avenues and what support mechanisms they have and how long this journey will be um, in supporting. And they are, they are the first responders to the veterans' good and bad health. So uh, this is the importance of having a relationship-based model not a transactional model. So because it's a relationship-based model, the families develop a strong element of trust with legacy over the period of time. They're not calling into different people all the time or being an unknown factor because this goes in cycles. There are good, good days, there are good years, and then there could be a bad trigger. And who knows when that trigger you know, is pulled? But we are there for them. They know that. And, and psychologically, even through COVID, this demonstrated that, uh, you know, the, the, the mental health challenges we, we saw playing out in the community. In this one program, we didn't see any spikes. And, you know, what we did see was more stability because the family knows we are there, both in a COVID time and non-COVID time. So oh, wow. it, it, it is pretty amazing. So, look, we are seen as an old agency within, you know, 100 years of age, but... We are also, we don't hang around uh, for that long without being very adaptable and to meet the needs of the families in our care, which means what we provide to one family might not be the same to the other because that was a different need. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing and very challenging, I've got to say. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I, and I think there's a there's a beautiful story here as well. I mean, when you talked about, you know, you being read details for the guys deploying to Timor uh, and having to deal with families and uh, to help them understand, I think it, it you've kind of done a full circle of, uh, of now being in charge of an organization that particularly looks after families. Um, you, you said, of course, that it's particularly challenging. Maybe we'll focus on the families first. Uh, Perhaps an obvious question, but one that I'm sure many listeners would want to know. What are some of the biggest challenges faced by families of those who return uh, from battlefields around the world, you know, with various various uh, mental health challenges, questions, and so on? What, what are some of their biggest challenges or the families? Yeah, and, and once and I, again... And I understand that's a broad question and probably, you know, like you said, every family is different. Absolutely. So, um, and I've said a few times that, you know, you know your experience, Maz, mine, even in similar areas will be somewhat different and therefore our response will be um, somewhat different. But, but what are some of the commonalities that, that I see is, like, I actually, you know, as I said, I'm, I, I, I consider myself both mentally and physically healthy. But I have my bad days, you know, when I think about, you know, the loss of life, the, the experiences uh, of those around. And, but I don't speak openly about these. Well, I'm, I'm probably starting now speaking more openly to my kids because they're, they're older, um, but also uh, my, my, my wife, because as you'd appreciate, is, is they don't understand the environment because their experiences are one, as I say, of a you know, beautiful city like Brisbane and a wonderful environment and great communities. And so when you try and then explain every degree, it becomes frustrating and, and the tensions build. So, you know, what, what some of the, the common problems our families face in supporting a veteran with a mental health issue is the openness and, you know, that, that element of trust. And, then, and therefore... You know, you know, right down to the physicality of you know, nightmares, not being able to hold down a job, 
and, and, and there is you know, degrees of violence um, that, that occur, all to do with some of the mental health challenges. And, and then on the other spectrum, there, there are those who just needed a bit of support to get them onto a, a stable platform that they can provide for their family and they move on relatively happily. But knowing that legacy is there in case there is another trigger further down the track. So, you know, every family is different, but, you know, at the end of the day, our job is to give these first responders, the partner and children, the tools and the awareness of where to call if something bad, really bad happens and, and who to call, but also equally when they see a deterioration of the, the health of the veteran, don't wait for the crack, you know, lean in, uh, have a discussion now so we can hopefully you know, stem that tide a bit and, and put the veteran back in, in contact with the, the support networks that he or she needs. So, yeah, it's a really challenging space. Not forgetting that legacy is formed on a volunteer base. Now, in, in, this, in this mental health space, we actually use paid staff, but that challenges the legacy model because the other thing about legacy that may, may not be known to even the Australian listeners is we're not government-funded. We, we are only funded through the generosity of the Australian community. Now, that makes it a great Australian story. You know, no other like it in the world, and it's always lived on the generosity of the Australian public. And now we're in this you know, mental health space. But once again, we understand what we do and what we refer. So we don't try and replicate services of other great agencies like your Beyond Blues and you know, other mental health. We just refer into them. And, but because we're such a trusted part of the family network, it makes it easier for the family to even pick up the phone and call someone. Yeah, of course. And and, and you said, I think, what, 7,500 just in the uh, in Queensland. Is that how many? That's correct. Well, that, and that's just in Legacy Brisbane, which looks after oh, wow. basically half. Yeah, so it, it's 52,000 nationally. Wow. It's still amazing. A lot of that is our World War II ladies. Uh, and you know you're in a good organisation when you still have so many World War II ladies, you know, living and not only just living, but really living, you know, <laughs> just wonderful, wonderful. My first, my first event here at Legacy uh, from became CEO was a non-Nigerian morning tea. <laughs> and so even wow. Truman, I what non-Nigerian meant. It was uh, birthdays over the age of 90. Yeah, wow. <laughs> they were dynamic. Uh, 82 ladies just in this one club. 82 ladies turned up and they were just amazing stories of resilience, of strength. And uh, it was very humbling uh, to be amongst them. It really was. Absolutely. I can imagine. And, and, and uh, well, I did not know that it was the only one of its kind in the world. And uh, I, yeah, I think it, uh, if anything, it uh, should set the, uh, should set the standard, I think, for these types of organizations, because I mean, they, they are immensely important for the families that, arguably, as we already said, do the hard yards, I guess, when their loved ones uh, loved ones deploy. Um, m- so moving on to your, I guess, your staff and even yourself, I, I, I can't even imagine some of the stories you have to hear or, or I guess you sit and listen to of the hardships that some of these families go through, particularly those who've uh, lost their loved ones uh, in a combat zone. How do you and your staff deal with these quite confronting and challenging stories because I'm, I, you know, do you then need to go and get help separately as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you can't. Uh, it's like all environments. Um, you got to try and control your environment as best you can, but also understand when the environment is taking over. 
we have all those uh, checks and balances. We have uh, professional support available to the staff in that uh, environment. You know, there, there are known byproducts such as, you know, you, you can passion fatigue in which you take on so much of that emotional burden um, that sometimes you may not even realise it uh, until your peers see the change in behaviour, the change in the dynamics. So, yeah, this, this well-being is, is critical to anyone operating uh, in this space. But equally, you know, even amongst a, a very large volunteer network that deals with, you know, the aged widows who, who live on their own in their home, you know, we give them the tools as well to say that, you know, you're visiting 15 to 20 ladies as, as one legatee. Legatees are, are the volunteers of legacy. But, you know, how do you keep them up to date? with you know, all the opportunities they have or, or you know, when they should put their hand up and say, actually, I probably just need a bit of a health check myself at the moment. So, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing challenge, but I think the first part is saying, you know, once again, informing, educating, saying these are potential potentialities that, that may present and we need to look at each other. You know, this strong sense of mateship amongst your peers to say, are you okay? Uh, how are you handling it? And perhaps you just need to have a little break. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm conscious that you're due for a break uh, <laughs> later this evening. Actually, you're, you're going on a couple of days well earned rest. So I won't keep you much longer. You've been very gracious with your time already. But a couple of more questions, if, if I can, because I want to really narrow in now on some of the youth work that you do. And, and this resonates particularly with me as a young person who was affected by war at a rather young age. I think that's one of the most honorable parts of what Legacy does. But maybe you can give us an, a, a snapshot of what, what are some of the activities that you do for children of those who've suffered in service of our country? Yeah, look, thanks, uh, Mazen. You know, um, you've had an amazing journey, and and, and these podcasts you're doing are, are just fantastic to shine a light on uh, areas that people just wouldn't know about. So, when Legacy was formed, we were formed to look after kids. The, the, the theory of change Legacy was that if we could get kids through school um, and you know give them a good education, they could look after the mum and they could contribute to society. So that that was actually the theory of change for Legacy. Mm. So what do we do today? Um, when when I arrived at Legacy, we look we used to uh, as an or, um, organisation look after kids till they're eighteen, and you know once they turned eighteen, they went beyond Legacy's care. And uh, I had a, a gentleman, I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name, Ben uh, Ben Cox, no no relation, and he, he was a Legacy kid. His father had served in in Vietnam and. He lost both parents very early and, and he had a legacy that looked after him until he was 18. And then once he turned 18, he was sort of uh, said, good luck, you know, all the best. Mm. But when you think about that, Maz, there's a lot happening, certainly from an Australian context when you're 18. You're generally finishing school. You have just probably got your licence and you're allowed to drink. So there's, there's a lot happening socially. So we decided to extend the 18 to 25, our youth leader program. So up until the age of 18, we will take kids away on, on summer camps uh, here in Legacy Brisbane. So we, we start the year with about 60 kids on camp. And what that reminds them is that there was a peer network. So when you're having a bad day and, and, and feeling a bit sad about you know, your dad and your mum's loss, you can actually even reach out to some other kids who just you just want to talk about emotion and perhaps you don't want to talk to an adult about that. So this 
These annual camps are about reminding them they're part of a bigger family, uh, well beyond their living room. It also gives the mums, primarily the mums, um, time to plan the year ahead and you know get the school books ready and all the rest of it. So that's that's one big activity. We then do family weekends away uh, once again with the mums this time to you know g- g- give them something to look forward to. But primarily, what we do for every family is make sure they have sufficient funding to get the kids through school. So when you lose parent and therefore you know an income into the family and then you have a a sole parent raising a family there are significant financial challenges or there may be significant financial challenges so our vision is to make sure there's no social or financial disadvantage to those families in our care so it means if 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 the family has enough resources to fund it well we don't provide any resources to that family but the family next door who probably has seven kids and you know, can't even afford footy boots, well, we only be putting footy boots and, and getting them to school. So, but yeah, we really do look after um, their social development. And then in this 18 to 25, we call it our youth leader brackets. In this 18 to 25 year old bracket, it's where we try and now nurture their leadership and management and personal, uh, almost professional development. And we establish pathways. If they want to be an apprentice, if they want to go into general management, if they want to go into whatever field they choose, we mentor them along that pathway to the age of 25. And to assist us in that, we bring along corporate supporters who, you know, if we have a, using the apprenticeship pathway as an example, we have a great relationship with uh, East Coast Apprenticeships and they will place a legacy child into whatever apprenticeship they are after, and then they'll mentor them throughout that, that program, knowing that they uh, have already given so much you know, to our country and through the loss of parents. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a great way of using your networks to ensure your true social impact is delivered. It doesn't have to be by you, but you, you can create those connectors, the, the networks to facilitate it happening. Well, I mean, it's a, again, it's very much like that uh, family you helped in Bosnia, right? It's the same. It's it's the same idea, right? It's establishing relationships. It's it's developing trust. It's showing people that there are others out there who actually care for how you survive. And uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful that you've taken that thread throughout your career as as it really echoes. Maybe maybe my last question, and and. You know, feel free to answer. Uh, uh, you know, completely unrelated to your military or legacy career, but more from a personal perspective. Now that you've seen war uh, and its aftermath from a number of different angles, be that as a soldier on the front lines, uh, as you know, as a mentor during conflict recovery, um, now as head of an organisation that cares for those who've lost uh, a loved one in service, how has your perspective and view of war changed? Yeah, it's. Um, I think when you when you're growing up and you, you know, watch the movies on on, on TV, uh, you are so dislocated from the true emotional experience of what war actually is. It's certainly not entertaining. It's but in amongst all this tragedy and diversity of of, of challenges, you know, complex as they are, there are such wonderful human experiences. And you develop and forge friendships and mateships and just respect for what people can do in the most austere of environments. So my, my perspective of conflict, if I was to sum it up in, in, in one word, um, real. Um, and real meaning that uh, you cannot now, I cannot 
now emotionally disconnect from my experiences. Whereas prior to going to war, you know, I remember when, you know, Saving Private Ryan came out, you might recall that first five minutes, very confronting visually, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, the storming and, of the beaches, yeah. Yeah, and you go, wow, but that's all cinematography. It's, it's, it's very well crafted. And I think visually it does give you a, a bit of a, because you start having a bit of a shallower breath and, you know, when you're watching it, you can never replicate the actual experience of any one of those people who stormed that beach without being a real strength of emotion, smell, you know, it's so many things compounding upon you mentally. You just can't, you can't fathom that until you experience it. And, and dear God, I'd, I'd hope that no one ever experiences uh, conflict, unfortunately, due to the nature of our human you know, endeavours. Um, there will be, but yeah, it's, it's real um, and it's hard to disconnect you know, some of those memories. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a very fitting message. And again, it really encapsulates very much what this podcast is all about. It's, it, you know, I, I totally agree that we tend to glorify war in, you know, through movies, through cinema, through even our narratives or heroes of the past and so on. And yes, uh, it's fantastic stand up for when it's needed. But I think war has a, has a huge price to pay and we really should be, very, very cautious when we send our young men and women uh, into combat. Uh, Brendan, I, I feel like I didn't really know you until uh, you know until this podcast. You were my commanding officer back in 2008 and nine, and uh, you had an impact on me back then on expanding my horizon, as I said in the intro, half jokingly. But uh, uh, now that I've heard more of your story and there's plenty more we could talk about and hopefully we'll get another chance again, uh, I take my hat off to you for all the work you've done and, and I'm absolutely humbled by your experiences and also your your the obvious passion with which you do your work and the continuous thread that's you know at least over you know 25 years military career plus the last five and odd years uh, that have kind of uh, that, that have become very evident through this conversation one last thing i'll ask is just for any of our uh, listeners who want to support legacy what is the uh, best way uh, to support legacy yeah, you know, it's the, the website, uh, legacy.com.au. All options there. You, you can volunteer if you're in Australia. Um, you can donate, you know, so there's, there's plenty of ways to to contribute. Uh, and, I, and I'd warmly welcome any support. But, um, no, thank you for the opportunity, Matt. You know, always a great respect uh, for you and and not, not being fully aware of your full journey. I know you've been through a lot, but to where you are now, you're a pretty amazing individual, mate. Well done. Thank you very much. And I'll, uh, and I'll certainly post the, uh, the details of uh, Legacy uh, along with this podcast. Brendan, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, look forward to seeing you again uh, in the near future. Thank you very much for your time. Look forward to it, Matt. Take care, buddy. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.